You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I will be your host, Abraham. And I'll be your comedic relief, Shane. I don't know. (laughs) I'll be the other guy on this one. The other guy. I like it. I like that you've been switching it up and coming up with new titles for yourself as we go. Makes me feel like I should do the same. I think that's one thing that's really great about this podcast. It's like for years we've been doing kind of our own thing. And so just kind of, you know, stay the course. That's one of our values. It's like we are unabashedly ourselves. Yeah. I'll be your space ghost. How about that? That's my favorite one so far. Awesome. (laughs) All right. So Shane, I have to alert you to something. Your boss is coming. Snap to it. Ah, My posture is never better than when my boss is around. Right. Now, important consideration though. Shouldn't you be on the ball at all times, even in the absence of your boss being there to look over your shoulder? I mean, I guess it depends on your boss, right? Maybe you have a really cool boss and maybe the ball is not as important at that moment. (laughs) Also, like, I don't know, the whole logic of you should do it because you should do it has never felt like very good logic to me. No, I mean, logic is always kind of funny, but that's definitely the not a great one. Also, too, usually if it's like your boss is coming, you should be on the ball. Does that signal something worse? Like, doesn't that mean that like you stand to get punished for not being on the ball? And then like, why would you want to work in a place that would feel like that? Yeah, exactly. Probably if you're doing your work, it's because you feel in some way that your work is important or else you are constantly being watched. That could be another thing going on. Yeah. I don't like being watched. Yeah. Most of us don't. Many of us maybe have resigned ourselves to it, but we need to fight back. (laughs) that's it that's it damn the man that's the whole point of this podcast fight back (laughs) (laughs) just stick it to people logically (laughs) just kidding anyway (laughs) we're talking about something that is sometimes considered the sort of landmark idea in the field of workplace psychology and organizational behavior management and it at one time i think was regarded as being a pretty robust effect yeah Yeah, it seems like it. Like people really bought into this idea. We're really excited to talk about it because I think it will explain away some of the stuff that, or, you know, as we get into the minutiae of this, I think it will explain away some of the kind of employee behavior or coworker behavior you might see working in different environments. Right. So let's go ahead and jump into this then. So an overview is that we're talking about the Hawthorne effect, if we haven't mentioned that already. And if we were to take a definition from investopedia.com, which is a very fun name, (laughs) it is, quote, the inclination of people who are the subjects of an experimental study to change or improve their behavior being evaluated only because it is being studied and not because of changes in the experiment parameters or stimulus, end quote. So in other words, there is some reactivity, and that's a a related concept, although reactivity is one that has been very clearly observed. But it's when this idea of the mere presence of someone there watching you and there being some expectation about what your performance might be results in a change in that performance. Not because that they actually changed something about, well, okay, because this has to do with work a lot. Let's say they put it in an incentive system. And if the incentive system doesn't change behavior, but their presence of observing you to see if the incentive system changes your behavior might influence you to perform differently. And then they might conclude, well, when we put in this incentive system, their behavior improved. 
and when actually it was the fact that they were hovering over you, scaring you to death. Yeah, which is not the best kind of work environment to be in anyway, but we'll kind of get into all that fun stuff. But yeah, we're talking about this idea that an effect might occur when subjects attempt to change or improve their behavior simply because they're being evaluated. So like the fact that you're getting evaluated, I'm sure we've all probably even consciously experienced this where you're doing a survey and you know that survey is going to go somewhere. So you answer maybe more precisely than you would if you don't think that survey is going anywhere. You know, there's a whole idea of Christmas treeing an exam, right? Like, oh, this exam doesn't matter. So I'm going to go ahead and put C's all the way down where it's like, you know, if this is going to get scored and graded for something differently, you might change the way that you answer. You might be more precise and you might be more mindful of the way you answer. So there's a lot of different ways that you can kind of highlight this effect, but we're really excited to kind of talk about it because we've all worked in that space where we've seen this effect. Right. And again, I, and I won't mention this again throughout this discussion, but just this idea of reactivity is one that's been clearly observed in research where by participating in a study, you can have some change in your own behavior, especially if you're doing like a survey, you might sort of self-reflect in a way that you wouldn't normally do when you were thinking about how you would feel about something. And then that affects how you then respond to that survey and other things where, again, the fact that someone's there watching means you tend to be on your A game. So for example, at, you know, at my work, we have a system of like audits and observations. Do you have something like that at your job at all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have, we'll have like site visits and what I'll do is I'll do audits of like some of the trainings that we host and stuff. So, and I definitely in the past when that was happening was like, oh, I know exactly what things I need to do to make sure this turns out to be a good audit. And so <laughs> if I wasn't already doing those things, then I'm going to make sure that I incorporate them. <laughs> and, you know, for the most part, I think I don't really do that anymore and haven't for a long time because I know how to do my job and do it well. And I definitely see that there are some times when if you're being watched, that might influence your behavior in one way or another. I can think of this like back when I was providing like direct care services and I would have like a BCBA coming and doing oversight with me. I was definitely, you know, I don't want to say that I was different because I think I was still doing my job and I think I was still doing it well. I just did it a little bit differently. I would attend to different things and different cues in the environment differently when my supervisor or my boss was there during those times. So I don't want to say my quality of work changed. I would just say that like maybe the way that I would contact that quality of work was a little bit different. It'll certainly wake you up if you're falling asleep. Oh, 100%. 100%. (laughs) All right. So let's actually describe where this comes from, because despite what it sounds like, this isn't the name of a person specifically who discovered this effect. Actually, this comes from a set of famous industrial history experiments at Western Electric's factory in the Hawthorne suburb of Chicago. And this took place in the late 1920s, early 30s. Anytime we talk about Chicago, I wish that I had a good Chicago accent. Well, you do have a very good 1920s accent. (laughs) Yeah, so we did a bunch of experiments here in the factory, and it was wonderful. I just can't do that in Chicago. Like, I just, and then also I get into the idea of deep dish pizza, and and then I just get, it's a whole thing. So, Chicago is a very special place for me. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) All right. Later analysis of the study suggested that those data were potentially overstated, not even potentially, but likely overstated and that they may have ignored several important and relevant variables that would have contributed to the changes in behavior that were observed. Do you ever feel like that when you look at old research, that that's like a thing that happens? Like they'll make a conclusion in like a hundred years ago, and then we go, no, they definitely didn't know about this concept or this thing, so they probably overlooked this thing. And so now we know we better understand this phenomenon 
But back then, they just didn't have the technology or the wherewithal to understand this thing. I mean, definitely. And also, I feel like I still see that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's just science today. Like, that's science always. It's like, you miss this thing. So anyway, during the study, in the observation, the experimenters sought to see changes in productivity dependent on lighting. So they were changing some of the lighting in the environment to see if it changed productivity. But increases in behavior occurred in all conditions, regardless of manipulation of the lighting in the environment. So what they concluded was that the presence was the compounding variable that impacted the behavior or the productivity in the factory site. So it wasn't the lighting that changed, but like just the fact that they were there was enough to get productivity to change while they were doing their observations. And not presents like Christmas presents, but presents like the researchers were there and <laughs> obviously yeah, visible. Yeah. Like presents like we would use in paranormal research. Very good example. <laughs> <laughs> they may have actually been ghosts in this study. <laughs> yeah, it's a very strange study. The 20s were weird. It makes me think, too, of were they forced to work in the dark? The factory is like, I, I'm not paying for this electricity. <laughs> and they're, right. they're thinking, well, all we have to do is flip on the lights. And then the workers showed them, no, we'll work exactly the same, light or dark. <laughs> and so, <laughs> I love, I like, I want to know that boss. That boss was like, yeah, yeah, we'll just put some windows in here. We'll do some sunlight. That'll be enough. Right. I don't know. I just, I want to know what that factory was like before they did that. Yeah, I'm curious to know what how much lighting actually changed. And I think it's a laudable goal to try and make sure that I doubt that they were just working in the dark, but to see like if we try and increase the lighting or maybe this was like they were under these fluorescent lights and they're like, oh, I hate this. And so they're switching to LEDs, which definitely wasn't a thing back then. So I'm, that is definitely a joke. <laughs> but they were switching to something that was less harsh than like a fluorescent bulb right in your face. Well, and I wonder too, this had to have been around the time, I mean, this was maybe a little later, but I feel like around this time and a little bit earlier, there was just the AC-DC fights, right? The current fights. Like, so you had Edison versus Tesla kind of arguing about electricity at the time. So I wonder if like, maybe it was socially significant talking about lighting and electricity around then? Could be. Maybe they just put out candles for them. From what I understand, Chicago was probably keenly aware of fire at that time, so they probably didn't use that. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> there were some subsequent studies by Elton Mayo, which is a, a very cool name. Yeah. And this was in observing women who were instructing telephone relays, and this was conducted over five years between 1927 and 1932. Now, I'm thinking that this Maybe refers to the telephone operators that they'd like skate around and do their plug in thing. You know what I'm talking yeah, about? I feel like that makes sense. Yeah, okay. absolutely. They would have to be like, yeah, and like plug everything in. Yeah. Back before things were automated and made more sense, every single little thing had to be done by a human. And so there were these menial tasks of calling a switchboard operator who would then plug your phone line into someone else's phone line. And fortunately, we solved that a long time ago. Once again, computers taking people's jobs. You know, how dare they? And going back to the study that we were trying to talk about by Elton Mayo. So two women were chosen as test subjects, and then they chose four others to participate in their group to be observed. And specifically, they were examining a few variables. One is in the room, they had more direct supervision and feedback. So the second variable they looked at was the women's feedback was incorporated. So they tried to take into account what they were saying. They also did two five minute and two 10 minute breaks. And that this greatly impacted performance overall. And actually, very interestingly, the effects of this particular variable 
ended up creating a precedent for breaks during the workday. And I haven't followed up very much on this research, but at the time that we're recording this, the COVID-19 pandemic has been raging for a while and actually surging worse than ever. And I was reading something in the news about that many companies had gone to a four-day work week and that there were some potentially positive effects that had been observed by doing that. And if we, I think, could convince the world that a four-day work week is more productive than a five-day work week, I would be very happy. Fingers crossed, man. That would be the bee's knees. Yeah. I mean, I think I think most people would be very happy. And I love my job. I just also love having days off. So during the Great Depression, this study or these subsequent studies from Elton Mayo had come out and and this may have acted as a heavy motivation to maintain a paying job. Like so what we found is that these studies were there, people were you know, being more productive. So there was also this idea of just having more supervision, having more feedback, all that stuff that contributed to that because losing your job was really problematic at the time, right? So you had this issue of, I had to maintain my paying job. I, I would do anything and everything I could to maintain that paying job. And I would do it well enough to avoid the threatening struggle that came along with the Great Depression. Like nobody could afford to not be working at that time. So they were always on their A game, essentially. It happens. And so initially, the effect of the Hawthorne effect from observation, this was thought to be unavoidable. Again, they weren't really accounting for some of those other variables or changes in the circumstances that may have led to those behaviors that looked like performance improvement. So it seemed to be sort of just taken as this is just how things are, is this Hawthorne effect. We see definitely performance improves just as a function of observation management by walking around as they say it's still a thing that people really subscribe to yeah absolutely yeah i think that a lot of things that at one point were declared sort of became canonized for people as this is the way to do business and then anything that came afterwards was kind of like man i'm not gonna worry about that i'm just gonna do what i'm doing over here yeah we've always done it this way right you hear that a lot in organizations and much like education that's also the excuse that they use yeah. Oh, oh, that's why we still have daylight savings time. Anyway, anyway, <laughs> hot, takes. hot takes today. So let's look at some current research to kind of talk about this idea of this effect. Now, in the original study, the following variables were not given as much attention as they might today. Since we know a little bit better, and I kind of mentioned this earlier, we know a little bit more about the world and we know more about the science. So we know more about the compounding variables that contributed to specifically what might have been happening in that environment. So any one or a combination of the following could have contributed to the increase in productivity in addition to the presence of the experimenters. So the first would be differences in the environmental characteristics on each floor. So differences like airflow, lighting, the layout of the floor, even the layout of the job might have been different. So you might have seen a different productivity based on that alone. So sort of an ergonomic arrangement of the workspace may have affected the performance. Absolutely. Another one is, and I think this one for me almost seals the deal by itself, which is that if you had supervisors and managers who were on the floor when these researchers were there to collect data for the study to capture this, that ultimately led to the capture of this effect, that the supervisors and managers were therefore much more friendly and tolerant toward their employees and were putting on a show of like, look at how humane and awesome of a person I am, so that they looked good for the researchers and that that resulted in them having better and different behaviors toward their staff which then had their staff feel like, hey, I don't hate my job. This is okay. This is going well. 
and subsequently performing better because they were in a more positive work environment. It's like a parent at a party, right? So you've got a parent that's like at a party in front of a crowd of people and they're going to parent differently based on just the presence of other people. Like you have that parent that like normally might yell at their kid when they're doing something wrong, but then now they're just like kind of like gritting through their teeth like you you know, like they just have a totally different approach to how they handle a situation. So we've all seen those supervisors. I had that one at Starbucks that when the regional manager was around, all of a sudden they were super nice. And it's like, this is not who you are. <laughs> Quit lying. Quit lying. Like, yeah, Shane, that's fine. You can totally have those four espressos. You were, you've been shotgunning when I, you thought I wasn't looking. No problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, it's fine that you don't wear band-aids on your fingers to cover up your tattoos right now. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. But then like when they're gone, like I get written up for not wearing band-aids to cover up my tattoos on my fingers. Which looks way worse when I'm handing off a drink. Yeah. Anyway. Don't worry about it. It's just a pustule sore that's under this Band-Aid. Yeah, that's all. Probably none of it got in your coffee. <laughs> yeah, probably. I like the idea of probably. <laughs> so workers also became more social in the presence of researchers. So you actually saw an increase in socialization among the workers in that space. And then there was another one, which was that the group circumstances were different on different floors. So there are bigger or smaller group number that meant a different impact on the output of the whole, and that also may have shifted behavior. So I think just saying that if you have different group dynamics, when you have groups of different sizes, and that that will also impact it. So depending on where the researchers allocated their time, they may have seen something that didn't represent the whole workforce, but just a small part of it, whether you had a team of people working together. Yeah. And so in 2009, the University of Chicago decided to kind of reevaluate the data, given specifically that you, we also know a lot more about human behavior nearly 100 years later. And we're talking about when these studies were conducted, they were being conducted in a space where human behavior was just really kind of coming up, like psychological studies were just kind of coming up. And it was fairly a fairly new thing compared to what we know now. So the University of Chicago started to reevaluate these data and suggested factors that may have contributed to changes in the work behavior. And these factors seem better linked to the environment, which is more kind of like fits within our, our scope or our lens generally, than from the mind of the individual, which was more of a mentalism at that point in time. So what you saw was first there was an increased performance feedback that may have yielded increased productivity. So that idea of positive reinforcement, that the idea of praise. Simple praise on doing a good job and all that seems to be really effective in that workspace. Then there was also the novelty of having the experimenter around. And this also could be conceptualized as an increase in the availability of attention from other people. Yeah. You also saw subtle clues from the experimenters that could have indicated preferred outcomes to the subjects. And then the subjects would actually conform their behavior towards those goals. So basically, now you've got the subjects that know what's kind of expected of them or they've learned what's expected of them. So they engage in behavior towards what that expectation is. And so feedback and discussion of goals between the women and their supervisors were occurring. So the supervisors wanted to look good. So you might have had that discussion of what the goal was. You might have had that feedback. All the folks that were working in there could have been contributing and discussing what their behavior was and working towards that final goal. Yeah, I can imagine something where they come up and they say, hey, why are these people all here standing around with clipboards? And the supervisor's like, they're here to see if my sitting here watching you is going to affect how good you do at your job. <laughs> and, the, yeah. and the person's like, <laughs> oh, okay, so I need to do better. And the supervisor's like, yes, you need <laughs> Get through to the do teeth better yes. you better do better <laughs> we're in the middle of a great depression <laughs> that's exactly how that conversation went i'm pretty sure 
<laughs> just kidding. <laughs> but it, there very well definitely were, may have been a little bit of giveaway, maybe that murderous glance that your boss shot you out of the corner of their eye, or even if it wasn't murderous, like it was it was clear that there was a lot more conversation going on between the workers and then the supervisor than normally would have happened as a function of there being some observation and research going on. And then the last one here is that there is this sort of general tribal instinct of people to try and fit into a group and find and solicit sort of favor among their peers. And so just thinking about that, if this is trying to create sort of the most harmonious workspace possible, and if you have a, some direction to go in with that, then you're likely to go in that direction. Yeah. And, and you know, as as the University of Chicago is kind of evaluating these things, it's important to know that like, that was the lens and that was the scope of the science that we had at the time. It's very possible that in 100 years they could reevaluate that same data and probably even find additional confounds and additional variables that might have contributed to that behavior or maybe describe a different effect or maybe even the Hawthorne effect doesn't exist in 100 years. We don't know. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. I mean, not to throw it under the bus, but what we're saying is like, science continues to advance. It's the slow crawl of science that continues to advance, especially when we get new information. And so it's important to know that as we start going through these studies too. Okay. So Dr. Todd Grand or Grande, not a hundred percent sure. I hope it's Ariana Grande's dad. Yeah. I'm hoping it's Dr. Todd Grande, close personal relative of Ariana Grande, (laughs) maybe brother. Either way. Yeah. This is on YouTube. And so Dr. Todd Grande pointed out that few studies have tested for the Hawthorne effect that actually found strong evidence of this, and instead that they might be confused with the idea of sort of demand characteristics, meaning that sometimes participants work in a manner or an effort to please the experimenters, and also trying to find out what they're trying to find and moving their behavior toward that outcome. Yeah. And so it's also likely a function of behavior maintained by attention or tangible. So like what we're saying too, is like, it's possible that whatever behavior we're trying to observe or trying to pin down within the study might just be served by getting attention, right? That behavior is contacting attention that they like. It's contacting things they like to do or things they like to have. And so that behavior might be geared towards those things, which we talked earlier about the idea of praise and positive feedback. That also does raise for me a point thinking about if people go above and beyond in their job and no one's there to observe that, then their pay and their acknowledgement and recognition for that contribution stays exactly the same. You know, it either stays where it's at or it is zero of anything in addition. So there's no reason really, there's no motivation to try harder at your job when you'll get just as much recognition, pay and appreciation for half-heartedly going, you know, doing mediocre work. However, if someone is there directly observing you, then going above and beyond is very likely to be acknowledged and rewarded. And so even if you get rid of this coercive dynamic and just thinking about this in terms of there is a very tangible benefit for putting in the highest quality work when someone's there observing you, because when they're not there, it's more work for less payout. And when they are there, it's more work for more payout. And so just thinking about this in a very straightforward, linear way of where where the motivation is going to be, I think is really useful. 
Oh, absolutely. So as we start kind of looking at this and we look at this idea of demand characteristics compared to the Hawthorne effect, we do note that there are some differences. The Hawthorne effect will say something like any observation or any change will always increase productivity regardless of the environmental factor. So basically what they're saying is the effect itself will say regardless of anything else that's going on, just the fact that we're showing up in just any sort of observation, it's always going to increase productivity. That's what the Hawthorne effect says. Yeah, that's a very important point, too, because I think a lot of people might be saying, like, this seems pretty cut and dry, like, that is definitely an effect that occurs. But the problem that we've been trying to point out this whole time and will continue to illustrate with more information on this is the fact that what this effect states is presence of observer means performance increases. Period. Right. And what we're really finding is that there are probably a lot of other circumstances that are better explain that change in behavior, not just the fact that someone's standing there. Because ultimately, like, if it's just someone standing there, then a scarecrow should more or less do the job. You just, like, put a mannequin in a business suit and put it behind people, and all of a sudden you get yeah. top dollar <laughs> performance. Or, like, a painting with eyeballs. Yeah, that maybe they move back and forth like that cat clock or something where the eyes go back and forth. Yeah, I've always wanted that in my office just to just to see what would happen. Word. <laughs> so this <laughs> idea of demand characteristics may indeed exist where participants can form their behavior toward the goal, as we mentioned, and that that is a threat to the validity of those Hawthorne experiments that were conducted. And so the effects here might likely be due to faulty experimental design or the experimenters, again, contaminating the results of this by leaking some of their goals to the employees or to the managers or otherwise there's just additional communication going on that that communication is what resulted in the change because other people are then privy to what they're trying to accomplish. Absolutely. So the idea is that we can learn to be skeptical, right? When we should be skeptical about any data that we get. The idea is that research is always subject to change when we kind of discovered new theories or new laws or new just a new understanding of the universe around us so what we can do is we can be skeptical about the findings that we get and also apply scientific method while interpreting the output from the research so we should be taking all this information that we're getting and looking at it through that critical skeptical lens which we're trying to do now and demonstrating that hey this you're right this it could be just the fact that somebody's there but it could also be any number of things so you know can we rule these other things out can we identify these other factors if we can identify more than a singular factor that contributes to an effect we probably need a better design we probably need to understand that that concept a little bit better or maybe if something can be explained away in a simpler way then maybe that concept that you have is not that great in the first place yeah, and maybe you apply that name to that simpler explanation, and that's sort of how you get around it and just redefine what the concept is. But yeah, you're exactly right. And it's really easy to sort of get sucked into the bias that we bring with us to these situations. When we think we have something, we then want to look for things to confirm the thing that we think that we have. And so, you know, I'm looking around thinking, I walk into an area as a researcher. And I'm like, hey, I've heard about this Hawthorne effect thing. I want to go try this out. And I walk into that area and now I'm looking for everything in the world to tell me that I'm right. And I'm going to hold on to that. And that that bias is going to influence my data collection and my reporting and everything. And if it's a, particularly if it's a very small effect, then it's going to be even more important to gather a lot of information to really try and protect it and say, I was right. That's it. Exactly. 
it's not okay. I mean, it's unproductive. It's fine enough. Like, it's understandable that people make these mistakes. And so I think the emphasis here is just we learn to recognize our bias where they exist. And I mean, this is a lesson, I think, perhaps from the Hawthorne studies to remind us not to jump to conclusions when we're interpreting our data and to try and look for all those extraneous variables that might better explain the changes and what we do. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of better explanations for what we do, let's talk about behavioral perspectives. <laughs> Indeed. And how. <laughs> so here's one thing we have to kind of account for. All changes in behavior found during the Hawthorne and subsequent studies are likely linked to some environmental factor or some change that is related to what we might call a program contingency or even a non-program contingency, but some other contingency that's more than just the observer showing up. So like, for example, we talked about pay differences, pay differences, lighting, social structures, feedback, all of those things can play critical roles in changing an individual's behavior, whether it's an individual or a larger group. So you've got this series or this set of variables that are all at play at any given time in this naturally occurring work environment. The only thing different is you're adding observers. If you're only looking at that singular thing and discounting these other things that definitely play a role in behavior, then you're missing some really key features of what might have been going on in that factory or in that environment. Right. And so over time, the psychological view has essentially shifted away from people changing their behavior because they were being watched and instead is now saying that people change their behavior to please the experimenter or conform with the experiment goals in that situation. And that is a probably more accurate way of describing what that reactivity is and how it works. And while the latter is definitely more realistic, we still might attribute that specific conformity to related variables of attention and other rewards is still occurring, right? So the presence of the experimenter might signal some kind of reinforcement like praise, might signal recognition, financial compensation. And on the other side, that type of behavior change might also signal avoidance of reprimands from supervisor, avoidance of corrective feedback when things are going wrong. So there's two sides of that coin that we have to account for. It's also possible that behavior conforms to more stringent circumstances based on the presence of some observer or supervisor or experimenter. The presence of a supervisor or experimenter or manager or something might signal that there's an increased likelihood of some kind of consequence, whereas an infrequent schedule of observation may yield in a poor performance because there is not necessarily an associated outcome from your work. So just saying like if they're there a lot and they're there high, with a high level of frequency then that means that there is a greater number of opportunities to receive feedback on performance be it corrective or praise versus if they're very infrequent then you have fewer opportunities and are therefore likely going to have poor performance i mean not exclusively like you could certainly have competent fluent and highly motivated performers who are rarely watched and do their job perfectly well but if the job performance isn't going to be influenced by having that feedback, then having more opportunities for that feedback will only boost that performance. A lot of stuff to consider there. So finally, the existence of a supervisor and anyone providing attention or positive feedback in such a way that might help motivate someone to be productive can contribute to behavior. You might see that behavior change 
in some way, just by having that supervisor there, anyone who's providing attention, anyone who's providing that feedback can actually shape or alter behavior, but their behavior may still be a function of several other things, right? So we talk about the idea of attention being cool and praise being cool, but avoidance is cool too. Like, I don't want to get yelled at my boss. I don't want to deal with the punishment that might come down, maybe getting my pay docked, maybe getting reprimanded in front of my co-workers. I, don't, I want to avoid all those things, right? So that's one variable to look at, this idea of unsafe signaled avoidance. Like when my boss isn't there, I'm still going to avoid doing anything that's going to contact any sort of punishment or reprimand or me losing my job. And especially when we talk about this during the Great Depression, there's this looming threat of intense poverty at any given time. And so that in itself is probably going to contribute to some motivation for behavior, especially productivity behavior in that setting. So you've got that. You've also got what we call intermittent schedules of reinforcement or just kind of like reinforcers or cool things that happen in what seem at random, like kind of like gambling is, you know, like you don't get reinforced every single time you pull the lever on the slot machine, you get it just enough to keep engaging in that behavior. And so we might be seeing some things like that occurring in the, in the factory too. I'm engaging in my productive behavior because every now and again, I get some kind of reward for it. Yeah, sort of a sporadic reward is a way of sort of thinking about it is unpredictable. Yes. I was thinking about when you said that people were, were avoiding intense poverty, and I was thinking literally intense because many of them didn't have homes, so they had to live in tents. Yeah. <laughs> Da-da. <laughs> and actually, that's a really perfect soundbite for that time period too <laughs> yeah all right so <laughs> oh the 20s i think that about wraps us up for the hawthorne effect do you have any anything else to add no i mean i feel like this one was pretty straightforward is that we just when the hawthorne effect came around we didn't really know a lot about this type of thing but now we know more about human behavior so it's a little bit more complicated than just showing up and and people do the work word okay so let's go ahead and and hit some take-home points if you're maybe just joining us for the first time, welcome. Yeah. We always like to end our episodes by sort of what is the main point? Like, what should you walk away from this remembering? And I think one of them is that this Hawthorne effect, it seems to be not as well supported as we once believed by evidence. And today it really exists more of a reminder to sort of rigidly analyze our experimental results and watch out for where our biases creep in and that we attribute changes to all the relevant variables and try and, I guess, recognize what those variables are. Yeah. So essentially what we're saying is that there might be several contingencies that are occurring in the environment. And so, you know, whether it's the experimenter's behavior or not, we should consider as many as we can, as many as we can capture just so that we can account for any possible motivation for human behavior that might be occurring in a particular context. So that's all I think one major take-home point. So I think another major take-home point is going to be that changes in behavior are based on direct versus indirect observation are possible. We can recognize it, you know, whether an observation is occurring or maybe it's like just the, the idea of it occurring might actually influence behavior. And it should be considered as part of a variable or a constellation of variables that contribute to behavior, but it's not the singular variable. Okay. So when you start analyzing this type of effect, you have to look at it from when you're interpreting data that this is something that might have influenced the behavior of the subject in that experiment. Yeah, and so I think I want to hit that point again. So that was our second major take-home point, and I want to just say it, because you said it really well, and it just occurred to me that I want to make sure we're really clear in saying that we're not saying that people don't react to being observed. 
they definitely do. What we're saying is it's not the fact that they're being observed. It's what that means in that context for that person. It's all of the contextual features of that observation that are important, not just the fact that there are eyes on them, but that that might be linked to things like pay or punishment or feedback or if they did change something about that environment where they were looking at the ergonomic setup of their workspace as a variable. So it's the context of that situation and not just the fact that they're being watched because the fact that they're being watched means something to them in that situation. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Perfect. So I think that's one of the embedded in the, what you were just saying. And so the last one here is that the Hawthorne studies show that people's work performance is dependent on social issues and job satisfaction and that monetary incentives and good working conditions are generally less important in improving employee productivity than meeting individuals' needs and desires to belong to a group and be included in decision-making and work. And that was a quote, by the way. I should have started with that. Yeah. (laughs) Pretty much everything I just said. (laughs) Yeah, that was a good quote. Awesome. All right. Well, I think those are our main points here. And so we can end with some quick recommendations. Okay, so I'll go first, and I am recommending a podcast that I don't think I have recommended before. Does this sound familiar to you? I think you and I have talked about this podcast, but never, I don't think there was ever a formal recommendation. Okay, well, and it's actually, to be fair, it's a radio show that gets converted into a podcast, and this is out of New York. It's called Science Friday, and they usually do two one-hour episodes, although with once they take out all the ads and breaks and things like that, they're usually about 45 to 50 minutes long, and that they come out every Friday, and they are usually news in science, but they'll also tackle specific issues around things like climate change is one they talk a lot about, machine science and artificial intelligence is something they talk a lot about. They really like talking about the microbiome and things of that nature, but I mean, it really is like a science news podcast. And so it's actually a really cool way to get news about issues, especially as they relate to science, which sometimes is news just in politics. And a lot of times is just like, here's new research showing X, Y, and Z, and they'll bring on experts and stuff. And if you don't catch the radio show, I believe it comes out in the Eastern time zone of 2 p.m. and 3 p.m. is when it airs. But then like immediately after they get released as podcast episodes that you can find in any podcast platform. Nice. So that's that's my recommendation. You know, I've been needing a new podcast, so I'm, I'm going to add it to my list. Nice. So my recommendation is a group, a band, a in, in their entire discography, definitely worth listening to and a lot of fun, and they are called The Beastie Boys. If you're not familiar with The Beastie Boys, they've been around since 1980-ish. Interesting enough, they were a band that they started kind of in the punk rock scene, and one thing that was really cool about what they did was they helped bridge punk rock and hip-hop at the time that both were coming up in New York. So they did a lot of really great things. Funny enough, MCA from The Beastie Boys did some work helping to produce Bad Brains records and did some projects with the Bad Brains and stuff. So like, there's a, definitely a lot of crossover in those genres, especially at this time in New York. So more than anything, I just recommend going to listen to their entire discography. License to Ill is fantastic. Paul's Boutique is an unmatched masterpiece that people don't give it enough credit. I think that's their number one record, but nobody talks about that as much as like Check Your Head and Ill Communication and all those ones too. So spend some time listening to them. They're just a lot of fun. I 
really enjoy it. And you can find a ton of their stuff on Spotify right now. Like all their stuff is up and they have way more than I think people realize. For those people who maybe aren't sure who this is, I'm sorry for you, but I also think this is a great recommendation. But the song that I think most people know them for is the You Gotta Fight for Your Right. For Your Right. To yeah. party. <laughs> yeah, either that or I feel like I feel like Sabotage. Oh, Sabotage is one. one. No Sleep yeah. Till Brooklyn is up there. But then like you'll hear stuff like to check it out and then you'll hear Sure Shot and you're like, oh, that's the BC Boys too. Intergalactic is one that was big in the late 90s. That's right. <laughs> Which is like an odd one, but it's so much fun. And you're like, oh yeah, they did this too. And so they just have this like discography that you're like, you f- like Brass Monkey is one that comes up a lot and you're like, you forget they did Brass Monkey, but when you hear it, you're like, I know this song. Yeah. So they're just a lot of fun. Yeah, that's a that's a great recommendation. I love it. Cool. All right. All right, perfect. Well, if you've been subject to the Hawthorne effect, please let us know. If you have anything you'd like to add to this topic on the Beastie Boys or on Science Friday or anything else, we'd love to hear from you. And we'd be happy to share any of your insights as a piece of listener mail if it's relevant to do so. If you'd like to leave us some kind feedback correcting us on something that we got wrong, feel free to do that by reaching out to us on any of the social media platforms or email info at www.wwdpodcast.com. That's also our website where you can find these episodes. There's show notes there with links and a bunch of other information, and you can find out more about us and what we do and all of that. And of course, you can support us by leaving a good reading and review and also by subscribing to our podcast and then by joining us on Patreon. I'd like to thank Alan Kinsella for his awesome notes on the Hawthorne effect today. I'm going to thank, of course, Justin Greenhouse for his amazing audio production work that he does on these, making it listenable because the raw cuts are almost unlistenable. So he works some Uh pretty impressive magic. Thank you as the listener for listening to us today. And thank you, Shane, for recording with me. Anytime. I I thought that was going to go to the end of that, to all the PBS broadcasts. And like, thank you to listeners without you, whatever that phrase is. But it's true. Yeah. I should memorize it so I can rip them off completely. But (laughs) the sentiment is is real. (laughs) That's true. That's a good point. (laughs) (laughs) Public domain. Free stuff. Gotcha. Anyway, that's all I got. Thank you for listening. This is Abraham. This is Shane. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.